0: I know it's a ways away, but I want to uh, talk about Thanksgiving for a moment. Um, and that is, I, I've been, I want you to think about what makes a particular Thanksgiving special. Because of holidays, it, it can be hard to track one to the next. They, they can kind of blend together, like, which Thanksgiving am I thinking of? Uh, we don't buy gifts for people, so it's not like, oh, that's the year that I bought such and such. And I would say that in terms of making it memorable, awkwardness makes it memorable. Um, I remember the first Thanksgiving my wife spent with me and my extended family. And I have a, a big family, like big in numbers. This is a Thanksgiving story, probably should have specified. Big in numbers, not not huge. But we. I mean, I'm one of 18 grandkids on my mom's side of the family. So it's a lot of cousins, a lot of aunts, a lot of uncles. And so when we all sit down, it is a long, long table of a lot of people. And it's not really a table. It's the thing everybody does where it's every craft table and camping table and desk. You can find all stacked end-to-end with a tablecloth over it to trick everyone to think it's one table, which is very dangerous, especially for the slide passers, because if it hits that lip, someone's getting hurt. I would estimate personally that the sweet potato casserole is around 2,700 degrees. That's the temperature that steel liquefies at. That seems about right to me. And if that spills on you, you're going to the ER. But what made this Thanksgiving awkward isn't the weird table nor the spilled food it was my uncle jerry we're all sitting at the table huge table i mean almost 30 people all sitting around everybody's talking it's absolute ruckus and he very loudly says across the table to my then girlfriend elena so elena what do you make of this crowd here everybody was talking they all stopped dead silence and everybody looked at her And I was like, if that was me, I would have thought it's been really nice getting to know you, Elena, but our relationship's over and I'm going to run for the hills until the skin is peeling off the bottom of my feet. I'm out of here. But jokes on Uncle Jerry, Elena loves attention. And so she thrived. She answered it, uh, all charming. Everyone liked it, chuckled, got back to their conversations. Um, And so I know that of all the times that I can remember, that's one I won't forget. Elena's first Thanksgiving and the awkward question. Um, When I think, though, of what makes it good, it's harmony. When you get in the car afterward and you're driving home with your family and you you just start talking about, there was no drama this year. There's nothing difficult this year. Thanksgiving can be times with foibles and awkward things that can happen, but when there's just no drama and and you you had a good conversation with some cousins or an uncle or, or things were fun, it just flowed well, those times are joyous and they're good. And, I, and it really comes down to what I think uh, we think about that more than, than the food. You know, we think of that holiday being one about food, but what makes them good? Uh, I would rather eat dry turkey and watery mashed potatoes and have a good time with family than to eat the world's best food. Uh, with my mom's side of the family, we get both. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, the, uh, But I think what it is is that one of our deepest desires... Is to connect with other people, to connect relationally with other people. When I see someone who's really mentally ill, and and to the point to where they they have nowhere to go, and we're seeing this huge problem with homelessness right now. And one of the one of the key things that links so many of them is is a debilitating kind of mental illness. Could be connected with many things that has happened or things that have gone on. But I'm always surprised. Um, how oh, I can never walk by without being noticed by them. I can walk by all kinds of people, and it's like I just can be invisible. But, but those people, it's like they, they, they want to interact with every single person, even if it's a grunt, even if it's a howl, even if it's saying something derogatory or following down the sidewalk for a little bit. It's like this, this horrible, hollow loneliness that's within them. Because no matter how broken you can be, in your mind, you want to connect with people. It's deeply who we want to be. We want to connect you know we recently got um or Victoria got a tortoise as a birthday gift a little little Russian tortoise uh, the cutest little thing she named him teeny, so teeny the tortoise is a member of our household now and when I was looking it up, Elena said, "Well, did they need a companion and I thought that's a good question. Tortoises are super expensive by the way uh we didn't buy it so i'm I'm fine but <laughs> Didn't want to buy a second one so a teeny could have a friend. So I Googled it, and to my relief, it said tortoises have no, uh, what did it say, instinctual need for companionship. They're not like guinea pigs or other herd animals. They live on their own in the wild, and they're fine with that. So whew, didn't have to buy a tortoise. But I think if we, if there was an alien race that kept humans as pets, and they Googled what to do with us, it would say, your pet human absolutely requires a companion. But heads up, they fight all the time. <laughs> you know, we've been looking at the Songs of Ascent. There have been 15 songs, uh, Psalms 120 to 135, that are written to be recited by Israelites making the pilgrimage, the ultimate pilgrimage for them to Temple Mount, Mount Zion, up through Jerusalem to the temple. To praise God, to worship Him, so they would. These 15 songs they begin in a cramped, overstressed, vexing urban environment. It goes into the wild, through the wilderness, to the temple, and um, it's just these songs of ascent. And and they're meaningful because yes, they were written to be prayed and sang by people who were on that literal pilgrimage, not figuratively but they still reveal so many deep, amazing things to where when God inspires scripture, it just creates a pattern we can look at. And it's this beautiful pattern from going where we are in our daily life to what the things that we should be aware of, the things we should do, the things we should remember to get, to find the meeting place God set up for us. The temple was a meeting place set up and to find God where he sets the table for us is a critical thing. We are going to be uh, reading after the pilgrim arrives. He's arrived in the city, and there's something interesting. I have read today's psalm many times. We're going to be reading Psalm 133, and I never picked up something that I found as I researched it, uh, everybody said is the context of this psalm, that it takes place uh, during a feast, there are several artistic little cues and and natures of the scene, placement of the song and its in its story of the of the pilgrim arriving, that he's not one of these feasts. These journey, uh, these feasts were made at the temple for people who made the long journey, and it could be soup and bread, uh, vegetables, and sometimes meat, things that came from the sacrifices themselves, and they were provided to people to refresh them. And this would be um, all Israelites. It would, have been, it would have included proselytes, all people who have left their homes, traveled with their families, came to the city to worship. One of the things they would do is sit down and eat together. And actually, there are some uh, Christian pilgrimages that do this. So this is uh, Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy. It looks okay. I don't know. Uh, it's gorgeous. You can only get there when the tide is out, by the way. Uh, and then you got to be a real fast swimmer if you uh, miss that. Uh, but so that's St. Michel And if you go there, uh, they make this, a great big puffy omelet. That's their thing. They've been doing that forever because that's the most French thing I've ever heard of in my life, that when you go to their pilgrimage, you get a big old fluffy omelet. Um, and so Elena's made those. They actually are good. It's like eating a cloud of eggs. And so they would make these so that when people would come and, and the faithful would come, they would sit down and they'd eat this together. And it was, it was a celebration of arriving. It was a celebration of eating with people who were there in a very similar uh, purpose as you um, in a time of refreshing. And so there's a few cues in Psalms 133. And I find it remarkable because nowhere in this psalm does it mention food or a table or eating. But as we look at it in its context, uh, it becomes extremely clear. So I'm going to read the whole thing, three verses, real brief, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 1, how good, it I- or how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the, the dew of Mount Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Whoa, what did I do? I skipped so many pages. Um, For the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. One of the references that allows us to see that this is a reference to the, the um, arrival feasts, the, 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 the pilgrim feasts is the oil being poured on their head because that was something that would happen before a meal. The, sense, the, the images and things he's putting together are, are meal ritual. And so they would pour scented oil on guest's head because they're pilgrims. They might have been stinky. I don't know. That really ruined an appetite. So they would pour it on their heads. But it was, it was a symbol of a little bit of practicality, but it was also about cleansing, and it was about calling. People used to wash with oil. In fact, if you read the preparation of Esther as she's getting uh, ready to be part of the harem, she's, she's washed with oil, which sounds horrible to me. <laughs> I would not want to be bathed in olive oil. Uh, but what it would be is it, it was very cleansing. They used it like soap. It was like the original Dove moisturizing soap. In a dry and arid place, if you rinsed it off the oil, it would remain on your skin and keep you healthy. And so they'd actually wash with scented soap. So it is a sense of soap and purity. It's used that way a lot uh, spiritually in images of, of being a symbol of God's purity on people. And, unit, and it's unified and, and very related to its second meaning that it is about calling and the presence seeping in. You see, water, you could also, and they did in fact scent water, um, you could and they used it for washing as well. They used it for rinsing. You could put it on as a symbol of God's presence, but water comes off quickly and easily. It wipes off. Uh, it can disappear uh, and evaporate. But oil remains behind. It seeps in. It goes deep. It sticks. We would be in a lot of trouble if the calling and anointing God placed on our lives stuck like water. We want it to stick like oil. Something that, that is not easy to get off. That remains in. That stays part of us and brings life to the skin that's underneath. God has set a table for you in his presence. And the the calling, the purification God puts on you is stubborn. It's not going to go anywhere. And that is an assured grace that we need. That as we go into God's presence, his calling remains. It doesn't get taken back. His purity that comes with it remains. There's this common connection that unites them all in this jovial meal. They are all together united for one purpose to travel to sacrifice the time and effort to be here from all points of the world is their common ground. I'm telling you, if you are lined up on Black Friday outside of Target at 3 a.m., you and the people with you have a few things in common. You're all crazy and somebody's gonna get hurt. That's, That's the reality of the Black Friday massacre. And if you are all at Temple Mount with your families, with your sacrifices, you've journeyed all that way, you've arrived on the day. You have something in common. It's God, it's his anointing on you and it is your perseverance to be there with him, to go to that place, your dedication. I really think that such a thing should impact how we see each other in this room. That uh, of all the places we go, we don't have this thing that that should connect us as deeply as this. We came from all over the place, all over this town. People are here from, live outside of Sandy. And we come here to, to listen to God's word, to worship Him together, uh, because we are dedicated together in something. It's a beautiful unity for all of us in this church, to every visitor we have that comes in here, that there's something beautiful that unites us. That which unites all of us in this room is far more profound than the little differences that separate us up make us different differences on uh, parenting and policy and politics and and how to spend money how to keep it how to save it how to spend it these things become far less important than the profound deep powerful thing that all of us are anointed with the same oil called to the same place the same table the same meeting place with God that we share the thing that together that goes beyond this this world beyond this life that goes through eternity There's a connection we should feel with all believers, particularly those that we have the privilege of seeing on Sunday mornings when we go to church. People headed the same direction. They have the same common challenges, the same common issues. Imagine people got there and they talked about like, oh my word, was Friday hot or what? Or when you were coming in, did you notice the wildfire up on the hill? I hardly got my cattle past it. They'd be talking about challenges that it took to get to that point. In the same way we share challenges to get to the point where we are at, this is not easy. Christianity is not easy. We did not pick the easy route at all. It is complicated. It is difficult. And the perseverance of it and the sharing of it makes something incredibly powerful and profound. There's this weird anomaly, Um, I think, it used to be true. It was true when I was in school. It might still be true that Portland is the most under-churched metropolitan region in the United States, Um, and yet we have a disproportionate amount of theologians and things that come from right here. Like the Bible Project. Anybody familiar with the Bible Project? That's a Portland project. Uh, Theologians that uh, have written things that have gone places, A.J. Swoboda, not only is he uh, Pacific Northwest and from Portland, he's foursquare. We get to claim him. Um, There's just this weird thing, and I think as I... I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I think it comes down to a lot that if you're going to thrive in your faith here, you must have something to share. It is not easy to be a Christian in the Northwest. It can be tense. It can be difficult. Uh, we tend to be more politically divisive in Portland than any other city, and so we, we have a hard time connecting uh, in, a, in a micro setting to an extreme level that the whole country's had to trouble with for a while now. It's very hard to connect here, very hard to stick together. And I think there's something very important to find the people that have chosen the same difficult path as you and support each other. To be, going on, to be doing this uh, as a team. Christianity is a group project that we do together. We need Christian friends who are going the same way in the same pilgrimage to God. And there's more than just common ground that they share. There's a really special common ground, and there's something that's in the language here that can be skipped over, but it's in verse. Why am I flipping so many pages at a time? There we go. It's in verse two. Down, down, down. It goes from, it goes from head to down on the beard. Down Aaron's beard. Down the collar of Aaron's robe. Down, down, down. This is a critical image that's coming here because unity only runs down from God. There is a particularly and powerful unity. It is not just common interest. It's common interest in a living God who works among us. As we open our heart to God more and more, we should expect a greater desire for unity with the people around us, to want to be with him because that is God's desire that his unity runs down that it tied all things together as Aaron was tied together, as the anointing touched the first high priest of Israel, Aaron on his head, down his beard, onto his ephod, the thing that made him sacred. It made him one called person. So is God's people called from natural to supernatural to the things that bless us. And it comes down from God. This unity pours out of a person who has long closed their ears to God. There's this... um, when, they, when they're about to stone Stephen in the book of Acts and he begins to say things that are really convicting them and they can't handle it anymore. And it says they plugged their ears and screamed. We have this uh, sometimes visceral reaction to keep my way. I don't want to be unified with a Christian cult as they, as they saw it. They didn't want to be one with Jesus. They wanted to keep their enemies over there, me over here. And, there's, and they plug their ears and they shout. I I have a hard time looking down at a Pharisee because sometimes when you start to see it in yourself, you realize that could be me (laughs) if God wasn't always on me and convicting me because I too sometimes want to close my ears and I'm being asked to be uh, more forgiving than I want to be, more compassionate than I want to be. Disunity pours out of a person who's long closed their ears to God. God, like any parent on a road trip, he just wants his kids to get along. As beautiful as unity is to us, it is far more beautiful to God, the one who calls, the one who who pours this down, who works among us. If you're seeking for some way for your life to please God, work to be unified with the people around you. And we unify in two different ways. With, our, with Christian friends and with believers that are going on the same pilgrimage as we are, we unify around that to a very intimate level. Talking about the hardship, being supported, allowing them to say things to us that could change our mind. And with people that are not going the same way, we are really, really open and honest and kind and try to convince them that they should take another step in the direction that we're going to come with us a little closer There's a reference in here that's interesting. It says that it is as if the dew of of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Quick information about Mount Hermon is it looks like this. And you wouldn't expect this in Israel, would you? That looks like the Swiss Alps or something. It is the, the wettest mountain in Israel. It has the highest dew count, the highest rain count, and it is one of the main watersheds for the River of Jordan. And there's a shocking reference here that we miss. You see that mountain is in northern Israel. And it's believed that this psalm was written after the schism. If you're not familiar, in the times of David, there was one king and one kingdom, and they all followed David. His son Solomon comes to the throne, one king, one kingdom. They all follow Solomon. His son Rehoboam comes on the throne, and they split two kings. A guy, it's confusing, his name rhymes with the other king, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. I don't know how that happens, but it did. Jeroboam convinces nearly the entire nation to leave David's line, and they go go start their own country. It's called Israel. And all that's left behind with David, all that's left behind with Jerusalem, is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And that's the point when this is written. Those two kingdoms split, and they were never rejoined. The Assyrians bred out and destroyed the northern kingdom. All that's left today is Judah, which is why Israelites are often called Jews. It comes from the term Judah. After the schism is when this is written. There's something that happens right after the schism begins. King Jeroboam, we'll call him Bad King Jeroboam to keep track due to the rhyming issue. Um, Bad King Jeroboam, he's afraid that uh, what happens is people will continue to follow the, the Mosaic law. They will continue to make sacrifices in Jerusalem, David's household, the city of David. And when they go there, their hearts will be turned back to those kings and they'll reunify as a nation. So he draws them all together, and he says, we're going to found a new nation. He recreates the golden calf. He says, behold, Israel, this is the God that delivered you from Egypt. And the whole nation commits an incredible sin. The northern kingdom never pulls it back together. They're a wicked kingdom from then on out. King after king after king is evil. At least Judah had a few good ones, and they tried many times to be faithful to God. Do you know where that council was held? It was held at Hermon. Mount Hermon is the founding place. Mount Hermon is, uh, to that false religion, what um, Mount Sinai is to the Mosaic law. It's where they drew together, where they created it, where they built it. Hermon is viewed by Judites as uh, a contaminated mountain, that its people, its movement, its religion is evil. The temple it founded is wicked. And that's what makes it so surprising. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. It's as if they were that close. Note that he doesn't say it's as if Hermon were no more, as if it were destroyed, as if it were erased. He dreams as if they were touching. A Jew would have felt like, you keep your Hermon away from my Zion. Do not mix the two. Yours is filthy. This pilgrim, he's not just picking monuments. He's not just choosing mountains. He is moved by the unity that he sees of all people coming to God, and he's dreaming of the nation being reunified, of being back together. He does so without a desire to erase them. The dream of such a close proximity is scandalous. Indeed, scandalous inclusivity and unity has always been a problem. When the church was founded, it was incredibly hard to get Jews to accept Gentiles. And this was, the, this was one of the greatest challenges why so many of the Psalms, or no, excuse me, Psalms, the, um, the epistles are dealing with this issue of getting these groups together. They needed Jews to mentor the Gentiles, but they needed them to accept them on the terms Christ accepted them on, and it was a challenge. Not too long ago in our own country, you had the Jesus People movement. Hippies sitting around campfires talking about peace, love, and acceptance started talking about Jesus. They got converted. They needed churches to go to to mentor them, and a lot of the conservative churches had a hard time accepting them. And you know what's interesting about our denomination, Foursquare, is we have a huge part in that story. Two times in our history have we blown up as a denomination, just exploded, grew super fast. It was the 1920s. The Roaring Twenties, we roared along with it. Amy Simple McPherson was planting churches. It blew up in California. They started planting them in Oregon. And Foursquare at that time was what, like what we think of Hillsong is now. That was Foursquare was that level of, of growth explosion. Everybody was talking about it. And then it, it slowed down and matured and didn't grow very fast until the 70s. And it was because we were the denomination to the most aggressive level to open our doors and to say, we accept the Jesus people here. Which is why Foursquare is run by ex-hippies, honestly. <laughs> all, of our, all of our denominational overheads, they've got calluses on their feet. From all the years, they weren't wearing shoes. Like We have got some really amazing leaders that come from that movement. We're a denomination that thrived because of it. There is uh, challenges that come with being unified. And it can feel often a bit scandalous. And of course, the the reality is, is that there is true righteousness. Absolute um, righteousness and absolute truth is something the Bible strongly affirms. God is absolute. His character is absolute. He doesn't change. We can't um, affirm every choice, every lifestyle. But times of unity push us to confront things that we call sacred that really are not. In the time of the Jesus people, some conservative Christians felt like it was sacred to wear your Sunday best and had a hard time with barefooted, long-haired people coming into church. They felt like it was sacred to be quiet, to be respectful, and to have these people that just wanted to get in there and talk about God, really. they struggled to connect with that. Foursquare won that fight. That's why I'm dressed the least formal you've seen today. (laughs) Thanks, hippies. Um, in the days of the new Testament, uh, a lot of, they were called the Judaizers made Jewish rites and regulations, the measuring rod of righteousness. And it was not. And in the days of pilgrims and the days of this pilgrim, as he sits around this table, they believe the whole mountain of Hermon and the Israelites who assembled there were contaminated. But purity comes to them when they drew near to God with sincere intentions Pilgrim, he's, our pilgrim today is not dreaming about a unified religion. When they take the religion of Herman and mix it with Zion. This is not his dream. The unity doesn't come up from us putting together what we built. It runs down from God, down, 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 down. Righteousness will always be part of it. But he dreams of the day when the best facets of our enemy can be incorporated into the praising voice of God. When they they praise God the way the northern Israelites do, and they don't become just like the Judahites. When they say it in their tongue, there's something in that prophecy of every every tongue and language and nation worshiping that's so critical. They don't become like, like all one person. but it's it's this unity of nations that as these places and people are redeemed, they praise in a way that we simply cannot. Fellowship in true unity is extremely difficult. We live in a time that has made this uh, even uh, more difficult. We live in a region where it's extremely difficult, to where um, it's considered an evil thing to either be friends with a fundamentalist right-wing Christian or to be friends with a gay individual, depending on which aisle you're crossing over from, to where people define their moral beliefs far more by what they oppose than what they stand up for. And these divides are things that are not of God. Broadly accepted snubbing is the norm right now. Whether it's going to be protest, I don't buy that product anymore, cancellation, I want to end that person's career. Become uh, a country that uh, is known for divisiveness, just as this microphone is known for its wicked rebellion. I Think I got it there? I just want you guys to hear me, really. Doesn't? Is it just me? All right. All right. Even the people in the back are saying it's just me. All right. Good. Now we get ahead on with the, with the more important stuff. This is what it was like in Jesus' day. In occupied Israel under Rome, it was like this. To where there were people you absolutely did not talk to, and your goodness was defined by how distant you were from those people. For Jesus to sit down and to have meals with, meaning he made friendships with tax collectors and prostitutes, was an enormous problem for him in the public eye with so many people. Jesus found filthy pilgrims, who were hardly outside their front doors. And he befriended them and convinced them to take one step forward with him, closer to the Father. I'm always amazed by how many times Jesus would have a meal with somebody and leave, and there's not the, the altar call moment. He must have, I mean, he knew how to be uncompromisingly holy and completely compassionate and patient with where a person was to nudge them along, keep going. Keep doing what you're, keep going in that direction. Keep asking questions. And how frustrated he was when he felt that, that Pharisees pushed back on that pilgrimage. Saying, you're not clean enough. Go back. Instead of saying, keep coming, keep coming. You're, no, you're not here yet. You're not in the city yet. You're not at the table yet, but just keep coming. Jesus went forward motion. It wasn't so much that he was concerned with where ideally you need to be right now. What Christ was concerned with, every person he came in contact with was forward motion. Go forward, a little bit further, a little bit closer. To the Pharisees that knew all Scripture, he had a high demand for them because further meant a heart change. He moves people forward on this grand pilgrimage to find our Lord. He was uncompromisingly holy, and unendingly kind and generous with the lost. This kind of unity, of of seeing uh, our connection with God, our place at the table, our, our belonging to one another in this pilgrimage that Christians would see complete brotherhood and sisterhood with those around them, is foretold by Christ to be the catalyst that will make an unbelieving world believe. We're going to read Jesus' praise over his disciples, and he literally prays over you today. This is John 17. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In this day and age, to choose unity, to choose mercy, to choose to be uncomfortably close with the mountainous different opinion beside us that the dew of that would be able to touch where we are is to shine a light in complete and utter darkness. It's completely opposite of where things are headed, have been heading for a long time. Because if the mountains were touching, as he dreams, the our pilgrim today, the nation might just come back together. And as we look at it, if our Christian world today were to touch the lives of those on the outside, the division mankind once would fall apart. And bad King Jeroboam's worst nightmare would come true. The people would draw near to God's presence, and their hearts would return to the son of David who sits on the throne forever. And that's Jesus Christ. Christian faith, at its heart, at its core, is a faith in a gospel of reconciliation and unification to be reconciled to God through our unification with the Son, and to be on a mission our whole life, to reconcile this fallen and hurt world back to the Father. To be a Christian is to be gentle in a world of violence. I think the advice that our Lord would have for us today would be to be the kind of person who would turn the other cheek, to bless those who curse us, win fewer fights, share more meals, and shine more light. Let's pray. God, I ask that as we have come now in contact with your word, we've experienced something, that if we take a few more steps, even making our choice to come here today to sit and to think about Psalms 133, that we find ourselves being drawn further into your presence, closer to you, more connected with you. God, I pray that you could give us similar dreams for the world around us. God, help us be creative in our spirit, just the way you made us, the friendships you placed around us to be the person who who continues to be as Christ was and to encourage the world around us one more step. Keep going, keep moving forward. I see the pain in you. I see the way that you want to connect. I see the way you want to be more whole and complete. You want to heal on the inside. And I know of only one fount that can fill it. Keep going. God, I pray that our kindness our kindness would make the world get closer to us. That it would draw near, like those photographers who set up and they wait for hours sitting still until all the nature around them grows safe around them, gets close enough for great photographs. Lord, I pray that we could also be quiet and still and gentle, that this broken world would draw near to us and that we would continue to be gentle and kind, patient, knowing that nobody makes it all the way to Jerusalem in one day. Help us be people who point others to this table, to dream of the day when those so far away from me, who think so different, who might even wish to destroy me, I dream of the day that they touch here and that I can see who you made them to be and all the things that have been imperfect in them and their their uniqueness, God, I long for the day to see that redeemed. Give us grace to accept those that are different and give us uh, discernment to know what really is sacred and true and what we need to accept people on good terms on. In the end, Lord, we we just pray to be conformed to the image of the Son. Help us do it like Jesus did it. In name we pray.